Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am more than excited today, and which is hard to believe because if you ever hear me talk on these podcasts, you realize that I am really, really great at helping you go to sleep at night with my voice. But I am very excited because my guest today is David Kissinger, and this guy has run more companies than uh, God. I mean, he's he's been in the entertainment business uh, since I was sperm and uh, and he just has such a long list of people that he's worked with and jobs that he's held uh, most recently for seven years he's been president of Conoco Productions did I pronounce that correct yes Conan O'Brien's company why isn't it Conoco is it Conoco or Conoco I like to give it a Hebrew pronunciation of oh. Conoco <laughs> What actually is it? It's Konico. Konico. Okay. All right. I screwed up. There you go. Um, and uh, I have so many things to talk to him about, but as always, I like to do a uh, cold <laughs> open to sort of give a six degrees of separation to my guest. And as always, uh, before I start, I just want to say this. I am so grateful for all of you for uh, the support that you've had with the podcast. It's it's I, I It's... It's incredible. Like when I sat down with David before uh, I picked up the mic, he showed me that he subscribed to it. And it just, I don't know, it's just hard to, you know, it's hard to believe that you know a guy 20 years in a certain capacity and he's listening to episodes of uh, of, of the show and, and getting something 
from it or, or whatever it is that uh, I, I don't know. It's just it's just so humbling. I just I it's it's just you go into something, anything you go into and you hope that you're going to make your mark or do something that, that has some kind of influence or some kind of effect on people, whether you're whatever profession you're in. And this was something I don't know if I've ever said this or not, but this was something that every manager I talked to, every producer I talked to, every lawyer I talked to told me, do not do a podcast. <laughs> there are no managers doing podcasts. There are no producers doing podcasts. There are no lawyers doing podcasts. There's a reason, Barry, why no one does podcasts. Because if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be fired. To which I said, hey, listen, I've already been fired. It's okay. I mean, I'm, it happens. I mean, it's going to happen again. It, uh, and they said, no, Barry, you don't understand. But what happens if your podcast is actually successful? I said, well, isn't, isn't that the goal? Yeah, Barry, but your clients are going to look on the ratings and they're going to see that you're ahead of them and they're not going to be happy. And I just thought, you know, I think it's a chance or a risk that you, you have to take. And I would hope that client wouldn't say, hey, uh, listen, where were you for the last hour and a half? How come you weren't working on my career? Uh, well, I was meeting with Chris Albrecht for an hour and a half. Oh, well, you're fired. You know, I don't, I don't think that's, you know, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. And it hasn't happened yet. But uh, it's it. It's it's a long race. So, um, but as I sit across here, I, I'm just so grateful that all of you are so supportive and and and, and that you get something out of it. And um, what I wanted to talk about uh, that I just came to me as I look across from David Kissinger and he's running Conoco <laughs> Productions. Conoco Productions is I thought to myself how I felt. <clears throat> during the time when Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien were going through that situation where The Tonight Show was being maybe unceremoniously removed from Jay Leno and handing the keys to Conan O'Brien. And I think about this and I have a lot of emotion behind it. And uh, I'll tell you why I have a lot of emotion behind it. Jay Leno, Jay Leno is one of the. If you if you know Jay Leno and you've ever been around Jay Leno, believe it or not, Jay Leno has a lot in common with Conan O'Brien. They're both known as two of the nicest guys to anyone who comes in contact with them. If you go and do a show with Conan O'Brien. You know, he'll come into your dressing room, he'll hang out with you, he'll talk to you, he'll make you feel like a million bucks. Jay Leno, you do the Tonight Show with Jay Leno, comes into the dressing room, how's your family, how's your kids, what's happening, makes you feel comfortable, always that way. Letterman, on the other hand, uh, which is a fascinating thing, is uncomfortable with the coming into the dress room and talking with artists. As a matter of fact, only once in all the guests I think I've had on The Letterman Show has he ever come in and said hello to them, and that was in passing from a hallway and it was a chance meeting. 
and I actually feel honored that I got to be a part of producing the first television show that Worldwide Pants did, which was Welcome to New York with Jim Gaffigan and Christine Bransky. And I got to meet Dave, and again, just a very, very reserved guy, perfectionist, but sort of uncomfortable um, with the contact of people that he didn't really know that well in his circle. So here Conan and Jay, two people that every person in Hollywood would say they're not an asshole. They're not bad people. They're not people that you look at and say, wow, I don't want to be around that person. Now, because of what happened with Jay and Letterman and because of the well-documented stories of how Jay Leno hid in an electrical closet to get information so that he could get a one-up on Letterman for the job for The Tonight Show, I think that reflected poorly on Jay. But Jay was the kind of guy that was very persistent. And if you listen to his interview, let's say, on More Stories with Jay Moore, he'll tell you that his persistence paid off. So when he was waiting in line at the comedy store and there were four people in line before him for an open mic and one guy said, hey, listen, will you wait here? I'm just going to go get some weed. Other guy would say, hey, could you wait here? I got a, this girl called me. I want to go to the payphone and call this girl. Another guy would say, hey, listen, I can't hold it anymore. I got to go to the bathroom. And then he would be right there at the front of the line. And so Jay wanted the job, he wanted the gig, and he did everything he could to get the gig on The Tonight Show. And I think that always was across the bear for him because Letterman felt like it was his gig. I think I can safely say that David Letterman felt entitled to The Tonight Show job. He knew that Carson had talked to him and said, hey, you're the heir apparent to this gig. You've done your time, done a more than a decade of service, the show there. You deserve to go up into that job. So Letterman never rallied, never, he knew the critics thought he was a genius. He knew the critics loved his show. He knew the industry loved his show. He knew Carson loved his show. And he knew Carson wanted him there. But what he didn't realize that there was more to getting a gig and more to getting what you want in life than hearing it from certain people who you think are the ones that are going to make the decisions or people are going to listen to. When ultimately in every job there's a group of people who make decisions that aren't the person in the chair before you, that aren't the people in the public eye. Lorne Michaels used to say to cast members when Farley was there and Adam Sandler was there and Janine Garofalo and Mike Myers were, there was an article that said Saturday Night Dead. And they had a big meeting and a lot of the cast members went in and said, Lorne, I don't understand. People go on the street and they tell us how great we are and what a great job we do. And Lorne would always say, people don't tell you to your face what they really believe is going to happen or what they think of you. Always know that. And so that was the fact. So Letterman just sort of stayed back in New York, took his body of work and said, hey, there's no one who can touch this. I'm the guy and Carson wants me. But the fact is that there were more factors involved and Jay was a politician. 
Jay was huggable and lovable. Jay was corporate friendly. Jay was doing everything in his power because he knew he was the underdog. And he knew there was only one job that was going to be available for years. And if he didn't seize the moment, and he felt that everything was fair, and he got the gig. And when he got the gig, I'll never forget this. And I think I've said this on one podcast before. I had a meeting with Jay Leno and Gary Considine, who was the executive producer of the show at the time. And I sat down with them and I asked a question that they answered. And when they answered the question, I'm embarrassed to say that I laughed out loud. I said, guys, how are you going to beat Letterman? And Gary Considine looked at Jay Leno and he looked at me and he said, with comedy. And I laughed out loud. I said, with comedy? What are you talking about? Letterman does comedy. How are you going to? And they said, no, Barry. Letterman doesn't do a lot of comedy beforehand. Letterman does like a five-minute monologue, then he comes back with a desk piece, and then he brings out his first guest at like 10 minutes of 12, maybe seven minutes of 12. We're going to do comedy from 11.35 to 12.05, and then our last 25 minutes or 30 minutes, we're going to do the three guests. And I'm going to do hard comedy up front. I've been a comedian my whole life. And within two years, we'll beat Letterman. And they were right. Because what happened was, even if Letterman had a great first guest, even if he had the President of the United States or Hugh Grant or, or Madonna or Mick Jagger, there's always people out there that don't like Mick Jagger, Madonna, or the president. But people don't turn off comedy. And in the end, I think he proved not only the persistence of knowing that he had to get the job and anything he could do to get the job, and he thought he wouldn't hurt his friendship by doing it, but it did, unfortunately. So the last little part of the story is a similar situation obviously happened with Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno. The network goes to Jay Leno and says, listen, uh, we want you to ride off into the sunset nicely and quietly, and we're going to give you this 10 o'clock show every night, and we'll give you a nice deal here, and we're going to bring Conan in, and it'll be a nice transition. And although Conan wasn't happy about it, he was excited that he was getting the opportunity for the job and he was excited to be able to go in there and make it happen and so Conan went in and did the 11.30 spot of the Tonight Show and we all know what happened America for some reason didn't come the way they came for Jay and that's when things happened with Conan that surprised me because he was never a guy who ever pointed to any factor or anything like that. He was always a guy that just 
was straightforward, talented, got the gig, never having any on-camera experience at all from Saturday Life to Conan, put up with so many tough reviews in the beginning of Conan, never addressed it really, just kept going forward saying, I know what I got to do, did it, and persevered. One of the most amazing stories. So then, as we all know, NBC went to Jay and said, we want to take off your show at 10. We want to put you on for a half hour from 11.30 to noon. And we'd like Conan to do midnight to one. And Jay, company man, just said, well, I don't want to cancel my show. I just got this show. I got all these people working here. We're doing this five-day-a-week thing, but... If you want, I'll do what you want. I've been with this company a long time. And he said, okay. And then they went to Conan, and Conan said, no. I'm not moving to midnight. This is The Tonight Show. I'm staying at 11.30, or I'm not doing it. And... You could argue one way or the other what was the right or wrong thing to do, whether he should stick to his guns or not. In my mind, as I think back, I'm, I'm actually respect Conan for sticking to his guns and saying, look, I signed up for the 1130. That's the Tonight Show. It's not the next day show. And... I don't want to be in a situation where Jay's on for a half hour and I'm on. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. Which I thought was admirable. But then what was tough was the personal attacks of Jay Leno. Amazing people like Jimmy Kimmel took Jay Leno to school on a live broadcast on a big screen of The Tonight Show. And Jay, true to the kind of person he was, he could have cut the whole segment, but he didn't. He kept it on, showing Jimmy Kimmel shitting all over him, saying how selfish he was to even engage NBC and be able to go on that spot. And so one of the things that I learned there, which shocked me, was that Even the greatest people in the world, even the most successful people in the world, even the nicest people in the world, and I'm sitting across from David Kissinger, who I swear to you on a stack of Bibles is one of the nicest human beings I've ever met in the business. We're all capable of making errors in judgment, even if we don't think they're errors in judgment. We're all capable of doing something or saying something that maybe might be better left said or kept to ourselves. Because whatever we do, whether we hide in an electrical closet or we say a negative thing about one of our peers or we go on live television and we dress somebody down on their own show, we can never take those things back. And they're always there on our permanent record card. And that doesn't mean that Jimmy Kimmel isn't successful. And that doesn't mean that Jay Leno isn't successful. Because talent always rules. And 
I love Conan O'Brien. I love his show. I love what he does. I love how he's persevered. And and I know he's on TBS and I know he's happy and he runs his own company and he sells shows. But in the end, if there was a true serum in his veins, I know that he'd want to be on The Tonight Show with that legacy continuing on. And I know that if he had to do it over again, I am sure that there are things that he might have done differently that would have helped him to create a situation where he had that franchise today and in the future for the next decade. So again, my lesson to all of you is the fact that uh, I think that if you're going for something, again, make sure you do everything in your power to um, cover every cover every variable, do everything you can to make sure you get it, you keep it. And my guest, David Kissinger, is a great example of the fact of all these positions that he's held, that he keeps them, he's great at them. And yes, they have a finite point at each one. But in the end, when he leaves those positions, everybody looks at him with respect and honor. And I think in the end, even though Conan is a TBS, I truly look at Conan with respect and honor. And I know everybody else does too. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am going to introduce my guest today, which I can't even, I am so happy to have him here. So, David Kissinger, if you don't know, has held 
multiple positions in senior capacities in the production and development business for network and cable television over the last 22 years. He spent the past seven years as president of Conoco Productions, the production company, of course, of Conan O'Brien, which is currently uh, commencing its fourth year under an overall deal with Warner Brothers Television after its previous ownership by NBC Universal. While at Conan's company, David has, exec- has executive produced two NBC series, Andy Barker P.I., which was named by Entertainment Weekly magazine as one of the 10 most entertaining programs of 2007, and the drama Outlaw, starring Jimmy Smith, which was broadcast in the 2010-11 season. He also executive produces the cable series Eagleheart on Adult Swim. And in the 2013-14 season, he produced a sitcom called Super Fun Night, which I love, which was on ABC, uh, as well as the late-night talk show The Pete Holmes Show, which I loved as well on TBS, and Dion's Black Box, also for TBS. Prior to joining Conico, Kissinger served for six years as president of NBC Universal Television, where he oversaw all aspects of development and production for the studio before their acquisition by NBC. He served as president of Universal Television, including two years, which the studio was known as Studios USA under the ownership of Barry Diller's USA Network, Inc. During his years at Universal, Kissinger helped develop some of the most acclaimed and successful programs on cable and network television. Among those programs, he helped to package, sell, and launch a little show called House which ran for eight seasons as one of the top-rated scripted shows on network television. Love that show. The U.S. version of the Office, the U.S. version of the Office, of course, recipient of the 2006 Emmy for Best Comedy, Monk, which was twice awarded the Emmy for Best Actor in Comedy, and became a signature show for the USA Network. Also, Battlestar Galactica, which was named by Time Magazine as the best show on television in 2004, and branding program for the Sci-Fi Channel. During his years at Universal, Kissinger also worked closely with Wolf Films on the extension of Law and Order, including two enormously successful spin-offs, as you know, Law and Order Special Victims Unit and Law and Order Criminal Intent. Where I started to know David was where he started at Disney Television, where he was there for five years as Senior Vice President of Development for Touchstone Television. Uh, he oversaw and developed production of many successful programs, none of them mine, because none of my programs were successful, including Ellen, Boy Meets World, and uh, Home Improvement. Prior to that, he was also a journalist writing for Rolling Stone, the New York Observer, and Esquire, and spent two years as a television correspondent for Weekly Variety. Ladies and gentlemen, a Yale grad, my guest today, who has sat through an hour and 27-minute cold open, please welcome David Kissinger. Thank you for having me, Barry. This is very exciting. It's very exciting for me. I, I've been telling you what a huge fan I am. This is uh, this is kind of a dream come true. For and, me. and what's scary is that you're you know you never lie. So that's that's what's that's what shocks no, it's me. It's actually disturbing to me how much time I've spent <laughs> with you in my ear as I walk my dog around my neighborhood. 
I, I feel like I spend more time with you than my children or my friends. That will but come I back really, to, I will love come back the show. therapy. Thank you for loving the show, though. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, one of the things that I love about it is this business can be very lonely, and it's so empowering and comforting and educational to hear the stories that you draw out of people, many of whom I know very well, but I've never heard them talk the way you get them to talk. Um, so I'm kind of a, a crazed fan, I have to admit. Well, thank you. I think what people remember most about his departure from The Tonight Show was that speech he gave on the last show about one of the most incredible moments of, yeah. of my life in television and the mo and to be honest with you which I did not mention and I'm so glad you're talking about it the week of shows before he was ending I would say with all with no argument the greatest five shows of late night television, they have to go in the top 50, all five of them. I mean, his monologues were like so unbelievably yeah. funny. And that last show, you, you, you don't like you, you're never inside the sausage factory. You're there. We as viewers. Are, now, I've been inside, but I wasn't inside that week. And for somebody to show the kind of emotion that he showed, the show kind of calm, I truly felt if he had done shows like those five shows from the very beginning, like they were, like he was performing without a net, those five shows. He knew it was over and he just took every risk and went everywhere and it was the greatest television that anyone could ever see. And maybe... I don't know. I, I just, I was so impressed. And so you're right about that. That was incredible that we... Yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess my final comment about it is I don't think he has any regrets. I don't think he should. I think uh, had he be, been given time, it would have been as much of a national habit as any of the predecessors who hosted that show made it. Um, I you know, that. Underestimating Conan is something people do at their peril. And I think uh, he would have he would have been able to make it his own, given the time. But, you know, I don't think he looks back. Honestly, in uh, answer to your comment about the truth serum, if he had uh, if he were awoken in the middle of the night, would he say that he wishes he still hosted The Tonight Show? I really don't think so. I think he loves what he's doing. He's embarked on a whole different chapter in his life. He's doing hilarious stuff, and he's communicating with an audience that he has a connection with that's quite unique in the business. So, you know, I think he's, he's a very happy man, and uh, I don't think he has regrets. Um, and just to share, like, uh, I think it's natural to believe that when somebody has a regret, that they're not a happy person. And so I, I want to go on the record as saying I don't feel like that's what I wanted to say, because we all have regrets. 
we say to ourselves, please have no regrets, have no regrets. But we all have things that we we think, hey, we could have done this this way or whatever. That doesn't mean we don't live happy lives. You know, uh, I, Letterman, regardless of whether you want to say he's happy or not, I know I have to believe that he wishes that he had gotten The Tonight Show still to this day and to know what that would have looked like. But it didn't happen. And he made the best of the situation he had. And we all look at Letterman in a way that we revere Letterman, including Conan O'Brien reveres Letterman. You know, it's such a fascinating collection of personalities. It's a it's an endless saga, the story of all of these late night hosts. And uh, last week, I don't know if you saw Craig Ferguson was on Seth Meyers show and he made a hilarious comment, which I think is very insightful and speaks to all of these different situations and how dysfunctional they are. He said, the only thing stranger than being on television every night of the week is wanting to be on television every <laughs> night of the week. Uh, so, you know, it, it does strange things to people, but I'm lucky enough to work with a guy who's kept his humanity and his perspective and is just a great person as well as somebody I'm a huge fan of. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned, I don't want to, want to spend too much time on it, but I think it's fascinating. You mentioned Craig Ferguson. This is the crazy thing about the business. And I don't know if it's the personalities. I don't know if it's the town. I don't know what it is. But NBC and the chair and what's going to happen when, you know, when when this goes down or that goes down, maybe it's the way the corporation handles situations. But NBC, every time there's some crazy issue or problem or thing, the public relations thing. And as we're talking, it just occurred to me that I'm going to backtrack and say that I don't look at anything that Conan did or anything that Jay did or anything that any of those people did at the time in any light that's bad because I look at the corporation itself on how they handled the decisions and how they worked on things. Letterman is retiring. Les Moonbez says... You know, literally one week later, Steve Colbert is my host. You don't hear whether Letterman said, hey, I think you should use this person. Steve Colbert is my host. That was vintage Les Moonbez. And 12.30, hey, Craig, uh, you're gone. This is who I'm going to put in as my host. Yeah. That's my decision. Literally like a ninja. Just in and out, not caring about the thought. Pro maybe he did care. Maybe he met with Letterman, however he did it. But as a, as a company man, handled with like, literally like precision, you don't hear anybody complaining, oh, poor Craig Ferguson, he deserved it. He worked for 10 years doing, you don't hear Craig Ferguson out saying, hey, I got fucked, I got this or what, because things were handled in a way right. like, hey, this is what's happening. This is the way it's going down. And no matter what you think about Les Moonbiz, which it could be argued, Again, this is another thing that's that's truly fascinating, David. Les Moonbez chose a man to replace Letterman, who the country doesn't have one frame of footage on 
as that person. Steve Colbert, even though his name is in the title of his show on Comedy Central, make no mistake about it, he's playing a character. He's playing, he might be a heightened version of himself, but he's playing a true character. So Les Moonves made a decision to put him in that chair knowing that the country has never seen Steve Colbert as Steve Colbert. But what that says about Les Moonves, which I think is consistent throughout his career, is he understands talent, he believes in talent, and he's willing to place big bets on talent with no equivocating. That was not the situation at NBC back in the period that we're talking about. So I think it's an incredibly stark contrast, and I think that Les will be vindicated with Colbert because he's a great comedy mind and a great performer and a great person. And I think ultimately those are the qualities that make you win in the long haul when you're on television every night. Absolutely. That's why you don't see people like... You don't see people like, let's say, Jim Carrey from Ace Ventura in that chair. You need somebody in that chair who's grounded, who's, who, who you want to be with every day and you want to hang with. And, and that's, that's very important. This has been really wonderful, this section, and I think really uh, learned a lot, not only about myself, but about the inside workings of things and you're there and you're there with Conan and and you know from the first moment I met him I just such a great feeling such a brilliant mind so uh, it's exciting uh, where you are and where you're working we're going to talk a lot a lot about that but what I like to do as you know since you listen I like to go way way back <laughs> way way back to where you grew up what you were doing <laughs> share a little bit with our audience what your family life was like and where your first vision was about getting into this crazy business. It's so funny being asked that question because I can almost <laughs> anticipate having listened. It's like a ritual. The I, formula. I know it's coming, but I, I love it. Um, look, I had a childhood that was alternatively pretty normal. And then, at times, extremely unusual and bizarre. Um, you know, my parents divorced when I was very young, and I spent most of my time living in Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb uh, of Boston. Ironically, Conan was from Brookline. Yeah, we definitely drank from the same water, but... Uh, and I'm from Longmeadow. And uh, so that was... That was the bulk of my time, but then I would go spend summers and vacations with my father, who was uh, working in the Nixon administration and the Ford administration. Now for our audience that doesn't realize who his father is now or is too young to remember, uh, David's father, who I just reminded him that in the 20 years of knowing him that I have never, ever brought up anything having to do with the fact that his father is, of course, Henry Kissinger. And I shared with him this off air, and I'll share it with you on air. 
I just always felt that you were an entity that stood on your own and you garnered the respect and admiration of myself and everybody and I never ever looked at anybody who was in another profession that was doing well or huge that was in your family. I never looked at you in a shadow of anything. You were always stood on who you are and who you were. No, oh, that's very sweet of you to say. And I I I, I, I and I even though I, I I don't want to do this at this time, I'm going to when I first met Tony Rock he said, what do I need to do to get to the next level? I said, well, normally a comic goes on stage and uh, they have to worry about following like a George Lopez or a Dave Chappelle or a, whoever walks in the club that night. But every time you go on stage, you have to follow an act that isn't there, your brother. So until you work harder than your brother, until you put in more hours and give everything you can to figuring out how it is you can get and create work that's extraordinary, that people look at as your own, you're always gonna be, oh, that's Chris Rock's brother. But once you start putting content together that blows people away, then when they look at Chris Rock, they'll say, hey, that's Tony Rock's brother and I always looked at you as a person who stood on your own and uh, your work well, stood you. for itself well fortunately I'm not a diplomat so I'm not necessarily having to uh, live up to my father's work you know I always had this bug from a very young age uh, I was kind of obsessed with the sillier uh, things in life. When I think of your father, I don't think of silly. Oh, he's actually very funny. You know, he has uh, a, f a fairly uh, deep and Germanic voice, so it, it often sounds rather serious, but there's a lot of irony and a, a definite uh, awareness of the absurdity of life. And we actually share a lot of the same comedy tastes. I can remember as a kid watching Marx Brothers movies or Danny Kaye movies with him and just laughing our heads off. <laughs> so it, oddly, we we bonded uh, about that. But, you know, I so I, like many kids of my generation, grew up watching a lot of TV. And I remember very early, you know, the Dick Van Dyke show, seeing these comedy writers uh, as characters in the show and thinking, that's a fantastic life. And then the thing that really blew my mind was when I was 12 years old, just turning the dial on the television set and happening upon Monty Python's Flying Circus and just knowing nothing would ever be the same for me. It was like an explosion in my brain. Uh, you know, I had already been a huge Beatle fan, so I could sense that there was a, a, a kinship there. Uh, but as soon as I, I saw Monty Python, it was basically uh, an obsession from then on. And uh, so that, that calling, that calling of pursuing something related to comedy and show business was was there very early. 
So when you went to Yale, what was your major? <laughs> it was history. I was certainly drawn to the more serious aspects of life and uh, somewhat, I think, it, at times entertaining the idea that, oh, maybe I should follow more in my father's footsteps. So I think that's what my my Yale major in history would tell you. But at the same time, I was uh, writing a lot of silly comedy stuff, and I was a, an amateur cartoonist, and I was in a lot of shows. I was in uh, Woody Allen's Don't Drink the Water. So I never really gave up that side of uh, myself during those years. So you graduated from Yale, and what's your first entrance into the business? How do you get into the first entry-level job in, in something having to do with the business? Was it the writing? No. Again, I, I wandered pretty far afield from, uh, from the business through much of my 20s. I, was, I went to law school. I clerked for a judge. That was at NYU, right? Yeah. And again, I was I think I was trying to sort of tamp down that that more uh, creative and, if you will, sort of frivolous side of myself. Uh, and then much to my parents' chagrin, I couldn't I couldn't tamp it down anymore. And I quit being a lawyer after about a year and started writing for Rolling Stone. Now, did you quit the law job before you had the gig with Rolling Stone, or did you, on the side, get the job at Rolling Stone and then quit? I, I was freelancing while practicing law, um, but I did actually quit without a net. It was, looking back, and now that I have a son in his 20s, I realize what a kind of perilous course I was on. And I'm so glad that I did it because it, it required that kind of course correction. Um, and I then got very lucky that within a few months I got a job on staff at Variety. And again, it was sort of kismet. I was, I was lucky. I was really lucky. I got. How do you get lucky? Well, I guess by doing the work. <laughs> but. Uh, Variety opened a lot of doors without even it being the plan. All of a sudden, I was able to get top executives on the phone as a reporter, and the thought sort of gelled in my mind, oh my God, what they're doing is a lot more interesting and rewarding and just a, a better long-term career than writing about what they do. So all of a sudden, I was finding myself in a room with a with Brandon Tartikoff or Barry Diller and uh, or Dean Valentine, president of uh, Disney Touchstone Television, and Brandon Tartikoff, obviously the youngest president in history at NBC, and Barry Diller. What can you say about Barry Diller? Again, relationships, because you look at Dean Valentine and Barry Diller, um, you ended up working with both of those people, and Brandon Tartikoff you would have worked with had he lived. I, I would have loved to. He was definitely one of the big inspirations to, I think, an entire generation of executives. Um, but th that opportunity to get to know people at that level 
enabled me to uh, make the transition to being an executive. And Dean was the the guy who really gave me that opportunity, uh, which I'm always grateful for. And I think he did that because, again, it goes back to Brandon Tartikoff. Brandon had done that for him. Uh, Dean had been a journalist prior to entering the business, and Brandon had sort of spotted him and invited him to come to NBC. So Dean did the same thing for me at Disney. It's unbelievable how people pay it forward like that. And uh, I'm curious to know um, if you'll oblige when you're in the positions you've been in. If I know you the way I know you, you've done the same thing. And I'm sure those people are working all over town. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the great joys of being in this business when you can help to uh, give that first break to somebody who is talented. Um, And a lot of people I've worked with have gone on to be far more successful than I am. So I'm I'm very proud of that. Let's not go crazy. (laughs) But putting a a little pin here in your story, because I want to talk about this here because a lot of people listening, they always want to understand the things that it takes like why somebody gets to the next level and why somebody doesn't and like you said there's been people who've worked with you that you have identified that you would go to the mat for to recommend them for a job and then there's people who you haven't who probably went home and aren't around anymore would you mind like in the middle here just if you don't if you don't mind mentioning a few names of people who you were proud of along the way, who you believed in, who you weren't afraid to go out on a limb and say, I recommend this person. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, rather than mention names, because I don't want to be, I don't want to forget anybody, but I will say that the big cross people who are obviously in it because they love the work and they love the product of the work and then you run into people who are so kind of transparently ambitious and it's all about the power and it's all about the trappings and I remember even before I worked for him Barry Diller uh, who had become kind of a mentor and a friend even before uh we crossed paths and worked together, kind of cautioning me that if I was going to become an executive, I needed to make sure that I was not doing it for the trappings, because those are so seductive. I mean, it is this uh, kind of intoxicating environment where very quickly, with very little preparation or qualification, you can be treated like you're important, you know, because you sit in a particular seat uh, and you know particularly back in the time when I started when it was a pretty flush time you know I was at Disney right in the heyday of home improvement when they were minting money and for those of you who don't know about the history of Touchstone Television Disney decided to start a television division. They didn't have a television division. 
So I started this division, Touchstone Television, and they hired Dean Valentine as the president. And David was there, and I believe Pete Aronson. And Pete G- and, and came a little later. Came Jordan little, Levin. Jordan Levin, I'm me, sorry, yeah. who, was, who went on to be the president of the WB. And, uh, and also... Um, Gene Blythe, who uh, was a legendary casting director, was there. And if I am not mistaken, get this, everybody. You start a television division, and you hope that you go out in your first year of development or whatever it is, maybe you make your mark in some way. If I'm not mistaken, the first television project that went forward, that you developed was home improvement and that ended up making i believe the company 800 million dollars in the first round of syndication and for which i can claim absolutely no credit to be <laughs> honest i i showed up right in the afterglow of that uh so i was very lucky um and they deserve a lot of credit i mean that's that's the brilliance of jeffrey katzenberg and dean valentine and that group. Um, yeah, Jeffrey was there before he went on to DreamWorks. Absolutely. So I was then the guy who came straight from Variety, having never had a job in the entertainment business, who was given the ability to spend a lot of the money that uh, Disney had earned from the, the home improvement bonanza, bringing in a, a sort of new wave of writers and trying to develop some new sitcoms um, to kind of ride that wave. And I I think the the most notable thing that came of that was Ellen, um, which... Tell me where you first saw Ellen. You know, Ellen had been uh, a cast member on a short-lived show that Marlins and Black had done that I believe was called Lori Hill. Of course, Marlins and Black did uh, the uh, a show with uh, Fred Savage in the Wonder Years. They had the uh, the keen eye for talent to recognize that she should have a show of her own. So Ellen's show uh, ran for about six years on ABC and in the course of that time, she made the very brave decision to come out, uh, which I think goes down in the history of television as a rather historic moment. So I remember when Ellen came out in that episode, and I believe it was uh, um, there was a writer named Deva Seville, Seville, who wrote that episode with some, I think, alone or with somebody else. Um, it was an amazing Warren Bell and yeah. Mark Driscoll. Yeah, it's an amazing episode. And take me back to like when she, because this is something again we're not privy to. When she decides to uh, come out, does she have a meeting with you and everybody at the Touchdown offices and say, "Listen, this is what I'd like to do," or do you hear it through the grapevine, or what happens? 
wanted to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs a company around $3 for every paycheck cut. And that means if you're an organization that writes a thousand paper checks every week, with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to GlobalCashCard.com right now to schedule live demo, speak to Michael Purcell, check out their system, and see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And in honor of the people out there who listen to this program, at the end of this show and at the conclusion of every single show, every single week until the end of the year, we'll be giving away one free $100 gift card to a randomly selected person who has written a review, good or bad, on the industry standard iTunes comments review section. And that's from all of our friends at Global Cash Card. It's hard for people to reconstruct what that was like back then because no television star of her magnitude had ever come out personally or as a character on the show. So it was a very brave thing. And I do remember the the sense of anxiety that a lot of people had, but there was also a tremendous amount of support. And I remember Ellen just being uh, extremely focused and determined to do it. But it was it was nerve wracking for her too. There's no doubt about it. And it's wonderful. I you know I work on the lot at Warner Brothers, where she now tapes her talk show, and I see what a huge star she is and how that period of her career is now ancient history. And she's just part of the fabric of American life. Um, and her sexuality isn't an issue for anybody. So I, I think she, she's an important figure in pop culture and it's, it's nice to look back and know I was around for that experience. It's all about, I mean, I always feel it's all about the content and what you deliver and no one, no one will care if you deliver great content. I remember the first time I saw the HBO special with Eddie Izzard and here's a guy from the UK, he gets his first HBO special and he's performed in drag and he's performed not in drag. He does whatever he wants, wherever he did in, in, in the UK and sometimes he did, sometimes he didn't. He chose to do his HBO special in a dress, high heels, coiffed hair, lipstick, eyeliner, lashes. His first shot at being a star in this country. And he decides, hey, I'm going to roll out like this. Because he was confident in the content of his material. And so it didn't matter in certain areas of this country, that, which was homophobic, because once you got past the first five minutes of shock of it and you listened to what he had to say, you were just blown away by it and you never cared. 
Well, as you know better than most people, there's just no denying a certain level of talent. And, you know, you and I shared some experiences with Dave Chappelle. Seven, I think it was <laughs> seven pilots in eight years. And I just look back on that and I, I feel so lucky to have spent time around Dave. Uh, but I also feel a lot of remorse that we did not come up with a vehicle worthy of his talents. Um, you know, in my career to have brushed shoulders with Dave Chappelle, I look back on as just one of the privileges that I've had. I mean, uh, such an incredible talent and such a sweet guy. Um, and obviously his career took some very amazing and then very bewildering turns, uh, long after I was in his life. But, uh, I, I'm so grateful that briefly I was. So you're kicking ass at Disney. You're there. You've never been a television executive in your life. You're not only involved in shows that are just coming into fold like Home Improvement, but then you're in the, involved in the development of Ellen, which proves that, you know, it didn't matter whether you're there for Home Improvement or not. You proved that you could be a part of something and a team that brought something as successful as Ellen to the forefront. Um, what made you decide to move on to the next gig? Like, what happened? What made me decide to move on to the next gig? gig was being fired <laughs> that that has a remarkable uh <laughs> ability to make you decide to move on to the next gig i think i know that feeling when it you look is back a very mercurial business and again i i don't think i should rehash the exact circumstances of my departure from disney but regimes changed and uh it was time for me to go and i was very fortunate that Almost immediately after that, an opportunity arose at Universal to kind of take exactly the same position there and try to grow their comedy department. Television and, executives are like football coaches. You know, it's like exactly. you know, if you do great work and sometimes if things happen, you can get another gig. And, and sometimes like Bill Belichick, even when you don't do extraordinary work, somebody sees something in you and you can get a gig and you can take it to the next level. What I wanted you to, I don't want you to go back to the experience or, or the circumstances, but I think our audience really appreciates these kind of stories. Can you at least take us to the day when that happened and were you like, where did you, did you, did you see anything coming or was it a situation where, Hey, I'm doing great work. Everything's going well. I know when a regime changes, there's people who walk on eggshells cause you don't know if you're going to stay, you're going to go. Um, did, what you at home who uh, can't see what's going on now uh, don't realize is that I have assumed the fetal position <laughs> as I answer this question. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, the the exact circumstances, frankly, I can't even sort out to this day. That is what is so uh, important to realize about this business, I think, for young people coming up, is there are things that happen that seem capricious 
and unpredictable. And even in success, nobody's job is completely safe. And, you know, we had a fair amount of success during that period. We didn't have the grand slam home run. So it's probably in retrospect, the absence of having generated the next home improvement, the fact that none of those seven Dave Chappelle vehicles turned into a hit uh, that led to my departure from Disney. But, you know, what is, I think what I value and draw from those kinds of transitions is that they teach you something about yourself and your ability to persevere and draw on some kind of inner strength and love for the work that leads you to the next thing. So I think that becomes a its own kind of self-fulfilling um, energy. And again, I, I consider myself having been very lucky to have been given an opportunity to move on to the next thing. I would not I think have been able to uh, get to the level I got had I not left Disney voluntarily or not, because <clears throat> being a universal, that was a company that was in a very fluid situation. When I arrived, it was owned by Seagram's. And then within months of my arriving, just by chance, Barry Diller acquired all of the television assets. And so I was kind of reunited with someone I had already gotten to know and admired tremendously and had, I think, some reciprocal um, goodwill from. And so that led, within a couple of years, to my being given the opportunity to be the president of a studio um, in a very dynamic period for that studio. It was hugely uh, dynamic, and you were there during that whole time. Well, first of all, I I should just say, for those of you who don't know much about Barry Diller, he is one of the most charismatic and interesting personalities I've ever come across. You know, if anyone knows something about the history of Hollywood, he is right in that tradition of the larger-than-life mogul. He is in in many ways the paradigm of that character. If you talk to many of the people who worked for him over the years, and, and many of those people went on to being giants in the business themselves, whether it's Michael Eisner or Peter Chernin, they will tell you that they learned so much about how to do it from Barry Diller. And he is a character. I, I like to say that He's a combination of Noel Coward and Genghis Khan <laughs> because he's elegant and witty and pithy, but he is also unstoppable and he can be brutal and his management style is to test everybody's convictions at all times. So working, <clears throat> working for him is always an adventure. And uh, so looking back on the universal period, any success that we had was largely due to his example and leadership. But uh, 
specifically the first great asset that we had that we were able to work with was the Law and Order franchise. And Dick Wolf, who's another larger than life personality, uh, the creator of the franchise, who also is that rare creative talent who has an entrepreneurial and business mind. And he was determined to spin off the show. Um, and the first vehicle that he came up with was Law and Order Special Victims Unit. But he knew that his intention was always to have at least three. Um, and it was a rare period over that five years that he successfully launched two enormously successful spinoffs. I think at one time, all three of them were in the top 10 and they were incredibly well written and executed week after week. So being uh, a part of that and getting to work with Dick and uh, seeing just the uh, sort of P.T. Barnum skill that he has in juggling all of those different elements was pretty exhilarating. Um, the other great shows that you've already mentioned that came out of that period were Monk and House and Battlestar Galactica. Let's go to Monk for a second. When you're developing that project, if I'm not mistaken, you're developing it as a written project and you were looking for somebody to cast in the role. And so, which is which is unusual from what it was in the past for you at Disney, where Home Improvement was was a show that was written after the talent was put in. Ellen was written after the talent was placed. So you, know, you have I a situation here where you have you're in a different situation where you're working with Dick Wolf. You're not a, it, the talent that was involved in those shows, obviously very important, but they were cast. And, and here you have another situation where you're reversing. So what's the difference in developing as a television executive when you're taking a talent and saying, hey, I like their voice. Let's find some writers and showrunners to write for them versus taking a creative talent like Dick Wolf and saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. Well, you're not going to say Dick Wolf, this is what I want you to do, but Dick, what do you have? And then let's bring this forward and cast it like uh, the same with Monk. Talk about how Tony Shalhoub ended up there and talk about maybe some people who came very close to getting that gig but didn't get it. Well, it's a very uh, windy road that led to Tony Shalhoub being the star of Monk. In fact, Monk was originally developed... At ABC, I think Steve McPherson has talked about this on your podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, the person, the single person who deserves a lot of credit for spearheading Monk is uh, an executive who's still at the USA Network named Jackie DeCrinis. Um And she previously had been at ABC, I believe, and brought it over to USA when she came there. And I think that Andy Breckman originally designed the role of Monk for Michael Richards. Michael Richards. That would have been a very different show. <laughs> uh, could have worked. I'm not sure. Uh, and in fact, now this is a, a cautionary tale to actors 
an actor who will remain nameless was cast in the USA pilot of Monk and was kind enough to come in to read with other actors who were auditioning who hadn't been cast yet. And he did this as a favor. And I remember sitting with Doug Herzog and Jeff Wachtel. Doug Herzog, who's now the uh, overseas of the president of Viacom Entertainment Group, who was my first guest on the show, and Jeff Wachtel, who's the president of um, um, USA Cable. Cable. And we were, purportedly, we were there to evaluate these people who are auditioning for the supporting roles. But what became very clear as this actor read with these people who were auditioning was he wasn't right for the show. So in doing us that favor, he sealed his own fate, which is uh, very sad, but the show would not have been the, the hit that it became had we stuck with him. And then we just had the good fortune that Tony Shalhoub became available, read the script and wanted to do it. And it is one of those moments where a role and an actor meet and something very special happens. And if that actor who had been reading with the other actors was a thousand percent prepared and really did the research into what the role was and what people wanted, he probably would be still there. But sometimes people go again with that sense of entitlement thinking, hey, I've got the gig. What can happen? Well, I can tell you a story about House that is kind of the other side of the coin, which is Hugh Laurie obviously was already an iconic comedy star and had done so much great work uh, when he came into audition for the role of Gregory House. But he was not a slam dunk in anybody's mind. And in fact, the thing that probably was the greatest strike against him was that character was such a kind of devilish and such a a rebellious character. And in terms of his American work, what Hugh Laurie was best known for was playing the very kind of mousy dad in the film Stuart Little which showed none of the sort of bad boy attributes that the house role required. And I probably, more than many people involved with the project, was skeptical whether he could bring that quality. And he probably had heard about some of the skepticism. I remember he came into the audition room with a little pin on his lapel that said, sexy. And just that little subliminal message, never mind that he gave an unbelievably brilliant audition, but the fact that he anticipated that concern and sort of threw in this little subversive message uh, showed that he took nothing for granted. And of course, that's another show that would not have been as great without the luck of the casting. So great. And um, let's move on. So you're doing great there. Everything's going well. Yet. <laughs> well, you move on. What happens there? <laughs> That's an example. He's, he's where... in the fetal position again, <laughs> <I> folks. <am. laughs> 
tears streaming down my face. Did you get fired again? I did. I mean, look, that is a, a period where... God, it's so great to sit across from a guy who actually has experienced the kind of things that I've experienced. This is exciting. I mean, I, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. And I truly feel that uh, each time I've kind of been forced to move on in my career, it's led to a n new chapter that's more fulfilling. Now, did you did you did you feel that one coming, or it just was a complete shock? Oh, I completely felt that one coming. I mean, there's no mystery about what happened there. That was a new uh, owner who wanted to put in his own people. I mean, that's as old as time. So there was no ambiguity, and there was absolutely no uh, precipitating cause. You know, I can look back at Disney and say, okay, we didn't fully deliver in that period, but I look back on that last year that I was running NBC Universal jointly with Angela Bromstad, who's a terrific person, and... Uh, prior to sharing the management of the studio, we had four huge hits. We had House, we had The Office, Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica, and Monk. Uh, in f you know four very different kinds of shows that each in its way uh, were huge assets for NBC Universal. So, you know. I look back on that when the chips were down and virtually everyone on my team knew that it was probably going to be their last few months at that company. The level of work that was done was so terrific. Um, you know, there is something liberating about knowing that you're just in it for the work and uh, the politics are going to resolve themselves how they resolve themselves. But that opened the door to being able to work with somebody who I had admired and known vaguely, but uh, had always had an instinct would be sort of a fantastic partner if I ever went into producing. And that's Conan O'Brien. And, and take us through that phone call or how that happened. You know, it goes back to the theme that you often bring up in this podcast, which is relationships. And it's funny, I've been meaning to tell you that uh, one of Barry Diller's mantras is it's not about relationships. He's a, a firm believer that success in the business is ultimately about editorial choices and it's about picking great material and picking great people but be that as it may you know that's an no, abstract I, debate i've, that I've always can have. i've always thought about that because i know that that he said that and i've never addressed it and um do you think he really believes that there aren't some things that have happened in this career that have been tremendous based on a relationship that he had well i'm too afraid to speak for Barry Diller on the off <laughs> chance that he listens to this podcast. David is in the fetal position again for the third time. <laughs> I'm not going to venture to uh, speak for him, but uh, I would say, having spent years around him, that no, he would 
he would insist it is not about relationships. Be that as it may. I mean, I think that's kind of an endless and maybe just a semantic debate. I certainly have benefited and am very lucky to have longstanding relationships with incredibly talented people who have helped me throughout my career. And a lot of those people uh, were very instrumental in introducing me to Conan and kind of speaking to him on my behalf. So that first, uh, that first meeting must have been fascinating. Yeah. I mean, again, you know how sometimes you meet someone and you just know there's a kindred spirit and maybe it is having grown up in the adjacent town to him. I think we had a lot of shared tastes and loves. He's also a Beatle maniac, also a Monty Python maniac. He's a, an incredible student of history, far more knowledgeable about it than I am. And, uh, so it was kind of a a good connection from the start and it's i've so enjoyed working for him all these years awesome and um i want to talk about a couple of things cuz i think this is what's so hard about television um and you tell me if i'm i'm high here super fun night okay i i happen to have a client who was a a recurring on the show, uh, Dana Dute. Oh. And uh, I've been there great. A, a number of times on the show. And I found it to be a very, very original and unique show. I found her to be, you know, Louis Anderson always told me America loves the fat guy. <laughs> now, uh, and, and America, I think, really loved her. And when I saw her on the set, Although it was in a different kind of way, she was a leader on the set. She was a force on the set. And I thought it was a very different take on on a half-hour comedy. And I was really, I thought it was produced really well. I thought it had great funny moments. I thought the actors and actresses were, were cast very interesting and well. I didn't think they were... I thought they were well above average. When you when you look at a show like that and 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 just America just doesn't rally around it. And and you're you know you're a smart guy and so are the executives on your team and everybody at the network and you put something forward and it just doesn't take what I mean what do you say to yourself about it? is there is there anything you can take from that or the cuz I don't understand myself sometimes when I see something great or that's well above average, that just people don't don't want to watch as much as, as things that are very pedestrian and very, very mainstream and very rehashed. And there was nothing about that show that I can even take of any show on television that was similar. And I'm back in the fetal position. <laughs> uh, now, you know... I think uh, you're being very generous about the show. I think there was much about it that was wonderful. Uh, I think that sitcoms on network television now are in a kind of transitional moment. And we were 
somewhat symptomatic of that. We had an incredibly talented star in Rebel Wilson who had a sensibility that if she had been left unfettered, would have taken the show in a darker, weirder, more subversive direction, which probably would have made for a better show at the end of the day. I think she was trying to uh, conform to what she thought network television wanted, and sometimes that kind of made her uh, a little schizophrenic and made the tone of the show alternately very sentimental and then very um, edgy in ways that didn't mesh completely. But look, I'm proud of a lot of the work that was on it. And again, given time, would Rebel and John Regie, who was the showrunner and the other talented people involved, have found the... John is an incredible, incredible showrunner. A very special guy. Uh, so, yeah, we didn't get that chance. As Conan has a little saying that I often think about, which is, you know, sometimes the souffle just doesn't rise. And so much of it is about serendipity. It's just getting all those ingredients at exactly the right time and uh, something special happens. And coincidentally, uh, Pete Holmes. Now, this is a guy, if, if you know Pete Holmes, you meet Pete Holmes. I mean, you, you just want to just be next to the guy. All you don't, you don't, you don't. You just want to be in the room with the guy as many moments as you can. You can't. It's infectious. There's just something about him. He's a larger-than-life personality, and he's got that kind of way about him that's just so accessible. And you would think that, okay, this is the perfect guy to rally around to put a show on, and you're betting, you're putting everything. When you put a talk show on, when you put a sitcom on, as much as you want to say, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket because you develop sitcoms, you have things going. But when you put your name on a talk show and then you decide to put that talk show after your own brand and your own thing, you are, that's the, that's, that you're all in. You are all in and you are making a statement. If a sitcom gets canceled, hey, I tried, I did whatever. But if you put your name on a talk show, that's huge. And so you and the company and Conan, you put the bet on Pete Holmes. I don't know anybody who met Pete Holmes that thinks that that's a, that was a bad bet. Now, granted, were there people out there that had more experience than Pete Holmes? Yes, but Conan got a talk show. He had no experience. So Pete had a thousand times more experience than Conan did when he got on. Again... When you look at something like that and it goes on and you have everything and you're working on everything and there's a whole group of people, there are like a hundred people working on this show and the network is behind it. And and and, and what's great about um, Michael Wright is he'll always say, you know, the whole thing is, is finding great talent and get the fuck out of the way. And, and but Conan was a guy who was a mentor so so nobody had to get out of the way. If Pete ever wanted to go to anybody, go to Conan, how do I feel about this? What did, and he had a mentor right there all the time. So in in your opinion, as a as somebody who's 
at the top of the chain at this company, what was it that you felt that, you know, you didn't see that America saw that said, hey, again, fun guy, great guy, content was fun. The show, you didn't watch the show and say, I hate that. You know, it's like uh, you, you can't watch the guy and hate him. So what do you think it was there that, that happened? I think the the key element in a lot of these stories that we're talking about is time. I have no doubt that given more time, Pete Holmes would have become an addiction for people. He is just too authentically delightful. Um, and you're absolutely right that it was not a a decision that anybody took lightly to kind of position him as the guy to follow Conan. Uh, and Conan genuinely viewed him as a uh, protege and somebody who shared a lot of the same energy and sensibility. So beyond that element, I can't really draw a single conclusion about what didn't work for the Pete Holmes show. Uh, I believe in Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes is going to have an amazing career and uh, we haven't seen the last of him. So I don't really dwell on exactly what went wrong. I think the joy of this business is we all are sort of pursuing this elusive idea of success and you never fully get it. You know, you just have to uh, keep pursuing it and that's the fun of it i guess some people get it <laughs> no i just i just think it's real because i i'm i just sometimes i just i try to know what's in the head of somebody who's in the position of your like i guess to use the example jimmy fallon takes over the tonight show and in seconds it's it's caught on and people are watching and they're telling people when they're and they're moving forward and and it's like and he goes on and with so much humility what did he say uh less people have walked on the moon that have had a chance to do these things if i'm lucky enough that you the audience will allow me to be here i'll do everything i can to entertain you it was like it was like i wanted to cry right then and there but the point is he went on and immediately the country spoke and said we want to watch you and and I've met Jimmy, I know Jimmy my whole career, and I know Pete Holmes. Both you could sit in a room with, and you just love it. But yet one goes on, and, and, and people rally around. The other one goes on, and they don't. And I, I just wondered from the perspective Look, I, of a president of a company, if there's anything more than just time. Well, I think the stars have to align. It has to be an environment where the audience... Uh, is ready to embrace somebody. I think Jimmy has been positioned incredibly well. He's a very special talent. There's a, there's no aura of uncertainty about it. He's been ordained to be the host of The Tonight Show. I think they've launched it brilliantly. There's a feeling of celebration that the show brings, a kind of unselfconscious joy. So... They've done a lot of things right. I think Pete Holmes did a lot of things right, but it just didn't have the energy surrounding it of being a must-watch 
event that the audience felt they had to uh, see. So, again, uh, you know, the other reality is to launch a show, a late-night talk show at midnight on cable is much more difficult. So, uh, you know, again, I, I don't look back. I'm glad we tried, and I'm proud of the work that was done, and I know that Pete Holmes is going to have huge success in one venue or another. I would agree with that. All right, let's do a little six degrees of separation here. I'm going to mention some names, some things, whatever. It's a little story, something, a little tidbit of something you might want to say, short and sweet. Uh, I've kept you here for 17 hours, and uh, and uh, I'm sorry about that. All right. No, it's a dream come true. All right, well, for me too. Uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg has an incredible energy. I was uh, at Disney for the last four years of his um, leadership there, and I can say that the moment he left, the the vitality of the place dipped in such a palpable way. Um, and I've spoken to him over the years from time to time, and it's always just such a reminder that he never... He never tires of the the hard work that um, he brings to the business, and his his love of the business is infectious. Andy Richter. Andy Richter is a talent who is very modest about his talents. What Andy can do in the most effortless seeming way is remarkable you know he he kind of likes to uh pass himself off as a bit of a slouch who doesn't try that hard but the truth is that in that comedy brain of his is so much originality and such humanity that every day uh, he just knocks it out of the park in the most uh surprising ways I, I love the guy. The creator of Home Improvement and Roseanne, Matt Williams. You know, again, I did not work directly with Matt. He had become such a an enormous uh, success by the time I arrived at Disney. I only observed him from afar, uh, and I learned a lot about him from listening to your podcast. So that's pretty much all I can say about Matt. Ellen. Ellen is one of those authentic comedy talents who just can go on stage and make people laugh in such a spontaneous and inventive way. And it's it seems to be an innate ability that she was born with. And it's it's very rare indeed. I, I've been around maybe half a dozen comedians in my career who have that kind of of talent, and she's absolutely at the top of that list. Agreed. Battlestar Galactica. I love to say that Battlestar Galactica is a show that is far better than it had any right to be. <laughs> that was a show that the Universal <laughs> Library owned, 
And if you ever watched the original show without being too mean about it, it's pretty crummy. It's a piece <laughs> of sort of pop culture debris that we inherited. And then thanks to the uh, incredible producing talent of David Icke and Ron Moore, they turned it into this very profound, interesting, challenging, dark show that had a lot to say about the post 9-11 world. And uh, that was not something any, any of us expected, but it was, it was pretty exciting to watch. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is just a guy who is sort of magical. And you know far better than I do that from an incredibly young age, Dave just exhibited the kind of talent that comes around once in a generation. And so it was, I think, looking back, it was inevitable that he was going to make his mark sooner or later. What I certainly didn't anticipate was the way he would sort of exit the stage of pop culture. But I think it's been fascinating to observe what his career has uh, done since the huge kind of uh, dramatic meltdown. Um, and I, I think he may yet surprise us by um, the great work he's going to continue to do in his life. Absolutely. Chris Rock calls him the prince, like prince of comedy. It's yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Dick Wolf. Dick Wolf is just a force to be reckoned with. Um, he loves the art of the sale. He loves the art of a well-crafted story. He is tireless. There seems to be no end to his ambition. And uh, he's kind of an old school mogul combined with a true writer. It's a very unique individual, and uh, I was really lucky to hang out with him for a few years. Steve Carell. Steve, as everybody knows, is one of the truly nice people in our business. I uh, fell in love with Steve's work on The Daily Show and made a very modest deal with him at Universal as a talent holding deal, which then led to him being cast in the office. And looking back, I'm absolutely convinced that nobody could have played that role other than Steve. We had some brilliant auditions again. Um, I, don't, I think it's well known that Bob Odenkirk was one of the people who read for it and Bob was spot on bringing essentially the same kind of energy that Ricky Gervais brought to the role in England which was that very uncomfortable somewhat dark kind of energy what Steve brought to it and I remember him saying this to me very early in the series was an understanding that this character Michael Scott was just a guy who desperately needed a hug. <laughs> and that sweetness and vulnerability 
made a lot of his very uh, bad choices forgivable and and actually lovable. So uh, we got very lucky again to have Steve in that role. Conan O'Brien. Well, I think I've already <laughs> bowed to uh, the the greatness of Conan a lot in this podcast, but I, amongst other things, I I feel so blessed that I work for a guy who, aside from being an incredible talent, is just a genuinely thoughtful, dependable, loyal person. So in a business where, as the various fetal positions that I've assumed over the last few hours shows, can be very cruel, I'm in this situation with a guy I just trust implicitly. And that's a really rare and lucky thing. And then on top of that, he is the funniest person I've ever been around. And I've been around some funny people, including you, Barry. <laughs> Just not today. <laughs> Before I get into the final stuff, tell me one story with you and your dad that you look back on and you feel the sense of just, you know, my dad passed away when I was four. So I never had that moment where you could look back and, you know, the, it really makes you feel something inside that you'll always remember that moment or that story or that thing that happened that just you carry with you through every job, every experience, every relationship, everything you have. And um, I was wondering if there was some story or something you could share about your relationship with your dad, something that happened that sort of always goes back to you and, and pulls at your heart a little bit. Wow, it's hard to distill it to one, uh, and I'm so fortunate that he's still alive and still vibrant. 91? 91, and we're very close, and uh, we speak all the time, and he's always been incredibly supportive to me in my career, even though it's clear to me he has no comprehension <laughs> of what I do. Uh He's not, you know, a big sitcom consumer, um, but he's given me uh, a real sense of the the value of tenacity in this life. You know, without being too corny about it, I'll tell you a moment that's sort of frozen in time for me, which is when I was 12 years old. He was sworn in as Secretary of State in the White House, and my grandparents and my sister and I stood on a stage with him next to the President of the United States, and this was happening in a uh, a world where nobody with an accent, nobody who had been born in a foreign country had ever been Secretary of State before, 
And my grandparents were both refugees from Nazi Germany who had lost most of their family in the Holocaust. So that gave me an insight into uh, what's possible in this country. And, uh, you know, it's a source of pride to this day to think how he arrived in this country with nothing and was able to um, achieve that. And more importantly, it wasn't just getting a job. For him, it was the opportunity to try to work on things that he had spent his entire life studying and pondering and trying to figure out. So even if it's as silly as a sitcom, I think there is a lesson for for me to uh, to try to do really good work, even in the face of adversity. But uh, yeah, I'm not trying to <laughs> compare uh, the, the gravity of that to, uh, the kind of work that we do. Um, but it, it's, it's about a way of life. Absolutely. Tell me your biggest disappointment in show business. Well, being a fan of the show, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> um, there's so many, you know, the, uh, a line that often, kind of uh, occurs to me. It's from an obscure song by a band called They Might Be Giants. And the, li the line is, uh, if it wasn't for disappointment, I wouldn't have any appointments. <laughs> and I think, you know, this business, it, it is inevitable that disappointment crops up a lot. Um, I think the fact that I got to work with Dave Chappelle for many years without um, coming up with a vehicle that would really uh, make use of his talents, I look back on as one of the big disappointments of of that career. Me too. Your proudest moment in show business? I can't, again, I, I can't really uh, distill it to one moment. I think it's sort of a, a gradual dawning awareness that some of the shows that I've worked on have touched people's lives the way the shows that I loved as a kid touched people's lives. You know, I, I've had the opportunity to travel all around the world and House, I'm told, was the most popular show in the entire world for a good long stretch of time. And learning that, was pretty mind blowing to have been a part of something that became that kind of uh, a global experience. Tell me a question that no one's ever asked you that you've always wanted to answer. <laughs> you know, what does surprise people is that I really have no uh, qualms about being asked about my father's career. I consider myself so lucky to have grown up around the, the kinds of experiences that I saw. So, you know, people rarely, I think people tiptoe around asking me, what was Richard Nixon like? Uh, so that's a question that I, uh, I don't mind answering. 
And did Richard Nixon, was there ever a time when you were a 12 year old or a teenager where you found yourself alone in a room with Richard Nixon and he was saying something to you? And what was it that he said yes. to you? I have distinct memories. You know, Nixon used to spend the summer in San Clemente. And so my father would have to come out to San Clemente and they would rent a house for him, which uh, luckily was on the beach and I would get to spend the summer there and it was great. But frequently I would be awake on a Saturday morning long before anybody else in the house and we, we would be staying in this modern house that was largely glass and I'd be sitting there watching... Um, the banana splits. And the next thing I know, the president of the United States is rapping on the glass, <laughs> waving at me as he took a solitary walk down the beach. And I would like jump out of my <laughs> chair in my pajamas and salute. Uh, so it was a very surreal experience. <laughs> That's great. All right, man. The last question that I always love to ask is, you've been around so many executives, so many great artists. If you had to, what advice would you give to the young artist or young executive starting out that they're just trying to figure out a way to find their way to get to the point where they have the kind of artistic careers of Conan or Ellen or Chappelle or the executive careers of people like Jeffrey Katzenberg, Barry Diller, or even yourself? Well, in terms of giving advice to artists, I would say if they need advice from me, they're in big trouble. <laughs> There's a big distinction. I would say, you know, truly, the, the talented people who have a burning desire to perform or write need no advice from the likes of me. That's... I would be very presumptuous to even offer advice. For executives, I think the one perspective I have that I like to try to offer is one of the best things an executive can do is to have self-restraint. I always think there should be a Hippocratic oath for executives you know, the doctor's oath first do no harm because one of the greatest services you can provide as an executive is to get out of the way of true talent. And that is harder to do than it seems because everybody thinks they have a contribution to make. And often you do, but to know when to, uh, get out of the way, even when it's against your own instincts, uh, can be an incredibly valuable gift to talent. Well, David Kissinger, you have been a gift today, man. <laughs> this has been unbelievable. This has been so great. I, I can't even tell you how inspirational this is going to be to so many different people. And I'm only embarrassed and sorry that I didn't reach out to you sooner to come on the show because, uh, um, and people are going to love this, and I'm very grateful. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have been here. All right. I'm going to spin my mouse, and we will pick the winner of this week's $100 gift certificate to Global Cash Card. This is by Buzzer535 on August 28th, 2013. Wow. 
uh, brilliant five stars as a wannabe writer director this is my new favorite podcast i travel a lot producing small events all over the country and these inspire me to keep pursuing my creative projects Thank you, Barry! Exclamation point. Well, Buzzer five thirty five, you win a hundred dollar gift certificate to Global Cash Card. All right, and as always, if you like the show, please. I don't even remember my own slogan. Tell your friends, Thank and you. if you don't like the show, tell your friends. Thank you, David. <laughs> They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.